0: Welcome to Fitness for Consumption. This is a podcast with a very unique view on all things related to fitness. I'm Dr. Paul Juris, kinesiologist, research scientist, performance coach, author, and innovator. I'm here with my co-host, motor learning and clinical specialist, Gregory Gordon. Together, we have over 50 years of practical and scientific experience in things relating to fitness, performance, and health. Join us as we share our stories and experiences and take a deep dive into essential fitness concepts and some highly complex issues too. Don't worry, we promise to keep it practical. And you know what else we promise? We're not here to tell you what to think or what to do. There's enough of that going around. We're here to offer you a different perspective on fitness based on something called human movement science. Spend some time with us and you'll think more critically about what people are telling you. You'll sort through it all and understand it more completely and you'll become self-empowered to make better decisions for you or for those with whom you're working. Are you ready? Let's get started. Alright, welcome to Fitness for Consumption. This is Part 2 of our episode, Whose Movement Is It Anyway? By the way, if you haven't heard Part 1, then you missed a great conversation with Dr. Lori Quinn, so please have a listen and then come back and pick it up here. If you did join us in Part 1, then you're in the right place because we're going to dive deeper into movement error and then get into some really cool motor learning and control topics. So.
1: Let's listen into part two, beginning with Gregory Gordon. At the 2019 N. Gentile uh, conference, there was a researcher, Dr. Diane Damiano, mm-hmm. um, who is a researcher at the NIH in biomechanics, and she works a lot with cerebral palsy. Youth and part of what she does is look at gait, and so her presentation was really fascinating to me. in, in, in the concept of error, so she was, and I'm going to just generalize here because I don't, I actually reached out to her and she didn't have a, a paper on the on her specific slide presentation, but basically her research was was showing different interventions they were doing with with children with cerebral palsy to try to help them have more stable gait. And so what they were working on was these sort of robotic assisted suits and the first generation of the suit that they worked on was a little bit more rigid and they expected a certain amount of transfer for the kid, you know, the suit was helping them move and then outside of the suit they expected because the suit was helping them move, they might have some better range of motion, better muscular strength. And what she said is, and then their second generation of suit, if I remember correctly, it was just kind of like a weight assisted harness and there may have been like, um, a little bit of like an external device or something. But just generally speaking, the second generation of the suit was much less rigid and allowed for more error than the first suit. So the interesting thing was that the children actually had better transfer, meaning they were they were better able to walk when they were able to... Uh, create errors in the less rigid suit, meaning that if they were leaning too far forward, they were they were at risk of falling. They, if they lean too far to the side, they're at risk of falling. So it was actually the errors were actually critical, not that they were a problem, not that they were something that you need to get rid of. The errors were actually the critical component. And actually, the thing that really resonated with me in her presentation, she ended it with saying, "It's about effort, engagement, and error." And I think, at least from the fitness industry, to PJ's initial point, we have these rigid rules about movement, and that if I'm the best trainer at my club, I allow for zero error. If you have an error on my watch, I must not be doing my job. And it's actually the opposite that that. And again, we're talking about a special population in terms of cerebral palsy, but I do believe that it extends, you know, human human condition wide which is the error is a critical part of the learning process and actually creating this ba- this internal bandwidth that you can move and operate and actually optimize your function.
2: Yeah, and look, I think that's a really great example from that um, conference. And I, I think the thing I love about those conferences that we've had is, the you know researchers really from all over from talking about all different kinds of patient populations and interventions, uh, really trying to draw on some of the concepts that Anne held near and dear to her heart. And um, you know, coming up with concepts of you know effort, engagement and error. I mean I just I just love those as as takeaways and they're really I mean things, you know Anne was saying 30 or 40 years ago I think robotics to me is very interesting, and it might not apply so much, I think, in your your area. But um, one of the things that in the rehabilitation world is, you know, there's been a huge amount of money invested in robotic devices for people who've had stroke and cerebral palsy and spinal cord injury, and what has come out is that it, you know, these robotic devices are not necessarily better than you know, good old fashioned, intense task specific training, you know, rehabilitation training. And I think one of the big pieces that they are missing is the concept of error and learning um i one of my um, graduate students who's out at usc now lori bishop has done some of this work in looking at um, people with stroke and in her dissertation study she tried to incorporate a lot of the motor learning principles of allowing people to make errors and giving them certain kinds of feedback in a specific way and transferring what people do on a treadmill let's say and to overground walking Um, and I think those kinds of studies are really the way that we need to be to be going and I think um, Dr. Damiano's work is I think is a really great example of that
0: I thank you for that Laurie but you know I want to just introduce a thought here because I'm already envisioning all these personal trainers listening to this and saying okay, well, we, we need to make sure that there's error in this now. So now they're going to jump <laughs> off the, the model and rules bandwagon, and they're going to jump into the let's introduce error wagon. And so if I think about this on a very superficial level, I would say I'm never going to use a fixed path machine now because how does someone commit an error when they're in a fixed path machine? The machine is guiding their movement. And so there's no error. Therefore, the machine can't be good. Let's throw out the machine. So I like to argue every side of a point and, and try to be successful arguing every side of a point. Um, so I want to distinguish a little bit between... Total variability in error or endpoint variability and error, because I think those are different concepts. If I go back to your rowing um, anecdote, rowing variability, if you were to look at perhaps the endpoint of the wrist or the hand in terms of getting the oar in the water and the power stroke, there may be a little bit of variability in that. But maybe there's a lot less variability in the end point of the movement. But if you were to look at the total degrees of freedom available in the system and look at the variability in the elbow and the wrist and in the shoulder, the velocities, the joint trajectories, in those areas, we may see tremendous variability, even though the endpoint movement is relatively consistent. So I want to make sure that our listeners, and this is a nuanced point, right? But I want to make sure our listeners are not taking this notion that, wait, I want people to be variable. So now I'm just going to give them tasks that have them moving wildly. Whereas with very specific movement pathways, endpoint variability can be very small where intersegmental or interjoint variability can be very high.
2: What I think about that point, it really draws me to the motor control concepts. And um, you know, the whole concept of degrees of freedom, right from thinking about Bernstein, and that there's multiple different degrees of freedom in this whether these are, 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 you know, are we trying to control the degrees of freedom? Or is it the fact that we have this abundance of degrees of freedom, what makes such uh, that have the ability to have such skilled levels of performance, but on a motor control level, we largely know that the planning is happening at sort of minimizing variability, quote unquote, at the end point. It's not always at the end point, but even concepts like jerk minimization, right? Or having smooth bell-shaped velocity profiles, right? That we're trying to, but but it really does depend on the task, right? Are we trying to minimize jerk? Are we trying to have some sort of um, smoothness factor that really is the end goal? And it really does keep coming back to what is the goal? rarely is movement ever the goal, whether it's the goal of the person uh, sort of consciously or really subconsciously, right? What they're trying to achieve. And that I think our cueing, our augmented feedback that we give to patients really can be so powerful in changing the goal. And I think that is where I think as, as trainers and as therapists, we need to be very, very careful that the minute that we start to focus an individual on The the kinematics of how they are performing it. We are essentially changing the goal of of the movement of the of the task and and we have to, um, I think, really keep coming back to the fact that um, there's a lot of motor control research that is really focusing on this um, that the goal is about minimizing, let's say, endpoint variability or some kind of smoothness or coordination factor
0: it's interesting that you mention movement as the goal versus movement for the goal. And we've talked about this before, and I think it's really helpful for fitness practitioners, especially to understand what that means. So just as a practical example, you know, I use free throw shooting in free throw shooting. The movement is how you accomplish the goal of getting the ball in the basket. So the goal is to get the ball in the basket. Um, but, for example, in gymnastics, the movement is being judged subjectively on itself. Diving is another example. Figure skating is another example. So in these instances, the goal of the movement is the movement itself. But most of what people do in the course of their daily living is not movement for the sake of movement. It's movement for the purpose of accomplishing a goal. And we talk about this in a previous episode on functional training. What does it mean to engage in functional training? So I think it's really important that we can distinguish between these two things because when trainers are looking at the way people move, they need to look at it in the context of what goal they're solving, what Goal they're achieving or what problem they're solving, and once we have that in mind, then I think we can start to talk about how we cue people to do that, which is you know a perfect segue into the constrained action hypothesis and what uh, you know Gabby Wolf is trying to do, and now what Nick Winkleman is doing in his book and how they're approaching coaching so that we can help people to achieve goals. Within the context of self-empowered movement, freedom and variability?
2: Yeah, so look, I, I think um I think this concept of attentional uh, focus and uh, specifically external focus, Um, you know, something that physical therapists are definitely spending a lot of time thinking about. Um, but again, I think maybe, you know, just sort of similarly don't have a great framework as to how exactly, um, we, we do this and we implement this in, in practice. Um, the concepts about external focus. I think similarly to some of the internal, when we think about internal focus is it's about, um. Knowing what the key components of the task are, and again, what what the goal is, because that's going to affect how, what you say. And, and because external focus, if you're trying to to focus on, it's really about the interaction of the performer with the environment, right? That's the emphasis of an external focus of attention, right? It's not just about how an individual is moving within themselves, but that we move for a purpose to interact with our with our environment but you can still provide really bad you know <laughs> feedback that has that's got an external focus. Um, again I'll break back to the to the rowing example. I'm not saying it was there was there were some difficulties in figuring out what is external focus when you're talking about rowing when you're thinking about how it's it really is challenging what you're trying to to focus the individual on. And again i think providing some level of autonomy on the part of the performer about what is it that you're focusing on what is it that you're thinking about asking them a lot of of questions and trying to help them problem solve some of the best ways to think about uh how to effectuate movement um but yeah i mean i'll let you guys kind of i mean what what are some other issues that you feel So to me i feel like this is just a you know it seems very obvious but i mean do you think that there's uh, some some arguments about that we do need to be providing internal focused sort of cueing to optimize movements or... i would say there's
1: there's one interesting thing to me about the studies i've read that when they have an internal focus cue and that tends to be that there's higher degrees of co-contraction which makes sense, right, because you're freezing degrees of freedom. You've got higher co-contraction, so your movement is less fluid. But I might have a, if I'm someone's, you know, treatment provider and I'm their trainer, I might have reasons why I I actually want more co-contraction. Like, I'm not concerned about really fluid movement. I'm just trying to set up schemes to where I'm getting more co-contraction. So it's totally possible to me that I might look at that and say, I'm going to give them a bunch of internal cueing, and I know it's going to actually interfere with like performing this task, but it's actually satisfying another objective I have. And B, um, again, when you get to the expert level of exercise, so, and I'm not saying I'm athletic in any sense, but I'm an expert if you put me on uh, a dumbbell, chest press or a a selectorized, you know, I've just done these things millions of times at this point in my life. You know, I could sing the Star Spangled Banner, roller skate with my eyes closed and do this stuff. So if I was looking for just, and I'm not saying this would be the best way, but just if I was looking for other ways of just sort of, you know, honestly, contextually interfering a little bit, and maybe we should discuss what that is. But if I was just trying to create more co-contraction, um, you know, internal cueing is something that I think I, I is reasonable to look at.
0: So I take a different approach to that. Um, if you give someone internal cues, then their ability to self-organize is actually minimized in my opinion. So if I want to create co-contraction, then I need to create a biomechanical constraint that results in high degrees of co-contraction. So I'm still going to create an environmental condition that will stimulate co-contraction. I can also increase the speed of movement, for Mm -hmm. example. So a simple way to get antagonistic behavior to increase is to go Mm -hmm. faster. So we know that when we move faster, antagonists are going to be contracting at a higher level. So there are ways that we can do that, which doesn't require the performer to focus internally on muscles or movements or anything like that we still establish an end goal we we have a a point in space that we want people to move to and we just set up the conditions so that we can evoke the type of contraction that we think we're trying to establish in order to get a certain effect the training effect over time
2: yeah, I mean, look, I, I certainly would agree with points from uh, from both of you. I am thinking about this concept of um, uh, what Anne would sort of talk about this action, movement, and neuromotor processes, right? So that for any one action, we've got multiple different movements that can accomplish that action. And for any given movement, we have even a greater level of neuromotor processes, whether it's at the level of the the brain or the spinal cord or the motor unit um, to be able to accomplish those movements. And so we want to be able to see those, that variability. And and I think you're right, Paul, I think it does, the the minute that we start to provide that internal focus, it starts to limit the person's ability to solve their own problem from a movement and even potentially at a neuromotor level as well, because you're just constraining more um i think you know part of the issue is that we do have knowledge about uh you know sort of muscle physiology about movements about um injury prevention that was something we sort of talked about earlier i think one of the concerns that i could almost you know picture people saying is well i want to prevent injuries right and we have knowledge about what kinds of movement patterns are, are, you know, bad or more Mm -hmm. likely to result in injuries down the road. I do think that's one thing we don't often pay enough. um, Well, sometimes physical therapists don't often pay enough attention to one of the issues with letting people create their own movements, right. And this is a bigger issue, I'm sure in physical therapy, but we have this concept, like people recover from stroke, right. And so if we're just letting them self organize completely, their self-organization is likely going to be the, the path of least resistance. Right. And that might mean like completely not using their one extremity because it's very hard and challenging to do that. But the ways in which we focus and attend to getting them to attend to their, let's say, involved extremity or to be able to to alter their movement patterns and create new habits. That really is where the challenge is, but I, I'm I'm probably of the belief that sometimes we need to provide some level of um I, I'm not I'm not sure I would define it as internal focus, but we need to give feedback at the movement level, right? I would not provide it as a cue, I would not provide it as a direction, but I think people need to have information about how they're moving. Um, providing them with the strategy to do something different, I think is a completely different, it's, it's feedback and queuing. We've sort of sometimes use those, I'm not sure you guys are using the terms, but I think we use them interchangeably and, and they are wholly different. Mm-hmm. Feedback is about providing external information that patients either may have access to or they may not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but cueing but is telling them how to solve the problem, right? And that is, I think, where the issue lies. I have no problem with providing movement-based information, but we have to be very, mm, I think, specific about how we do that and use it very sparingly.
0: I agree, I mean, for me, cueing is what we do in advance of the movement to provide someone with the necessary information so they can organize. Feedback is what we provide In response to the movement, so that people, what I refer to as knowledge of performance or knowledge of results. What are they doing, and are they getting the result that they want? And so, to me, that's the feedback. And I do think that people have the capacity to gather their own feedback. And I think that's an assumption that personal trainers often uh, don't make. They assume that people are incapable of understanding how they did and whether they need to improve it. And so they feel that they constantly have to provide that feedback and information. Otherwise, the person's never going to get it right. Whereas if you just let people solve the problem, give them an opportunity to do it, understand what they did and correct it, then they can improve. Now, as the requirements of skill increase, as the intricacies of skills increase, uh, as we get to more complex movement skills, one's ability to gather personal feedback and then correct it is yeah. going to change. You know, if you're, you're swinging a golf club and you're constantly slicing the ball, with a movement like that, it's very difficult for someone to get feedback to themselves and say, okay, I know how to fix yeah. this thing. But if we're engaging in more simple, more basic movement patterns, I think most people can solve those problems themselves.
2: Yeah, look, I agree. It gets a little trickier when you're dealing with people who have impaired nervous systems and impaired sensory information. But yes, I agree. And different people have different strengths, right? E- evaluating the learner. Um, one of the concepts I was, I was thinking about earlier was this concept of rate limiting factors, right? So what is the rate limiting factor of the of the individual that is limiting them from achieving that next level of skill or performance? And it might be about you know the motor component of things, but it very well might be the sensory information. Their ability to process and effectively utilize and translate sensory information. Look, I love the concept of knowledge of performance and knowledge of results, and the way um, when I teach this and when we talk about how you can give feedback, what what are what's information that you can give to the learner. It i used to classify it as you know before during and after the task similar to what you're saying the other piece within before the task so in addition to queuing is demonstrations right so demonstrations are you know or peer modeling or modeling in general right really powerful um uh, information that can be extracted and a demonstration especially a peer demonstration can be really effective in having an individual take out from it what they need. You know, so watching someone, let's use golf as an example, right? Uh, watching someone swing a golf club, right? I could, at, at my varying stages of evolution and learning to play golf myself, what I would get from somebody swinging a golf club when I was a real beginner so is so different than what it was you know a year or two years later we're and no one said if no one's even telling me anything i'm just watching and i'm taking what information i need so i i think that's really powerful and there's been there's definitely a lot of work done on demonstrations and peer modeling in the 1970s um and i think it, it hasn't been talked about too much but and then the concept of during the movement i completely agree to a point you made earlier about minimizing while they're performing the movement, right? There's that, especially in the early stages of learning, there's that high degree of conscious, cognitive involvement. And the minute that we start talking to them and we say, we become part of the regulatory features of the environment, right? That they need to control something else, not just their movement, but what we're saying to them and how we, or certainly if we put our hands on them, you know, becomes that much more complicated.
0: Um, so. No, I agree. I mean, I, I, it's. There are times when I think we want to flood somebody with information, but I would engage in that process at a much higher level of skill acquisition and performance, right? So taking someone who has automated skills and then introducing these additional cognitive or stress-based elements in order to try to push them for continuous improvement. But early in the learning process, it doesn't make any sense for me to do it. I think the demonstrating part is really interesting because these are arguments that I've had with people for a long time. And I haven't heard your perspective on it. So I thought that was it was very intriguing to me. You know, it. it I've always used the example, particularly in golf. You know, imagine you go to, to get a golf lesson and you're working with the teaching pro and the teaching pro gets up on the tee and puts the ball down and says, here, watch and hits it and says, OK, there you go. It's up to you now. I think I'd be aghast and and start thinking, wait, 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 what am I paying for? And I think what's interesting about your comment is that what you see, what you observe in in looking at somebody else demonstrating is going to change as your performance and your skill improves. And I think if we're going to be looking at demonstrating, I've always argued, well, one, how do you know what the person is looking at? If you're demonstrating for someone... How do you know what their level of observation is and what they're seeing? And maybe they're seeing something that they shouldn't be seeing. Oh, by the way, how do you know that you're doing it in a way that is actually conducive to their learning how to perform the skill? And so the role play that I've had with trainers is actually, so I I get a trainer to work with a client in a role play environment and I take out an eye mask, like a sleeping mask and I'm about to use it, and the trainer thinks that I'm going to give it to them so that they can't see what the client is doing. What I actually do is I give it to the client so that the client can't see anything. And now I say to the trainer, okay, cue this person on how to do this exercise. In other words, you can't demonstrate it. So how are you going to verbally instruct and cue someone to do this when you can't show them how to do it? And so this is a contrasting point of view, you know, maybe you could comment on that hmm. a little bit.
2: No, I, I like this little level of, of, of discourse. So far, we've just been agreeing with each other, so this <laughs> is good. Um, look, I think demonstrations, uh, I, look, I, I mean, I think that's an interesting strategy to try, to try to do that, but I don't think, I mean, why does what we say have, why is that the gold standard for uh, organizing movement or, or, tr- or tr- helping people to achieve a level of skill? Our, uh, and, and I think it also comes down to autonomy, right? Do we believe that our, our, the, the people that we are coaching and training, that they have got the ability to um, ob- take in the information that is important to them at a given time? Um, again, it's 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 that I think high level of autonomy that we want to facilitate. We might ask them questions about what is it that you observed with that. Uh, we certainly can provide additional augmented information, but I think it can be very powerful to to just watch. The other thing is is di- there's different learners, right? I don't think we also spend a lot of time in understanding that. Um, I think just asking some basic questions of of how do you learn best, you know. Some people really, I mean, they, they might literally have auditory processing disorder. They might have difficulty processing information verbally. And so visual demonstrations may be augmented with some you know, ad- additional uh, Im- information, verbal information, I think can be really powerful, but I think we have to give uh, credit to our patients and the people that we are coaching, that they can and will get the information that they need at a given time from a, from a demonstration. And the other thing about that is, I think the the, the pro is, a gr- is interesting. Um, there was a lot of work done by a researcher, I think her last name was Penny um, in the 1970s. Paul, do you remember this work where she did a lot of these like peer modeling, expert modeling, right? I remember one study where it was like, um, Oh, those ropes, those horrible ropes that you have to climb <laughs> up in physical education mm-hmm. class. Mm-hmm. And she did a whole study in a mm-hmm. PE class, right? Where who modeled that behavior? Was it the, was it the, um, PE coach? Was it, uh, another student who was much better, like the top student, or was it another student who was good, but not perfect, but better than the person. Right. And so the study as I remember it, I think was that it was the person who was struggling, right? Cause they could watch their problem solving, right? Hmm. That they weren't just watching a perfect form. Cause that was too much of a leap. You know, this is for a novice, right? Like how do I get up there? But they could watch that person solving the problem and that that was really beneficial for them. So yeah, I'll leave you with that.
0: Well, I think it's interesting because it, it's two different perspectives on, on an approach, um, and I appreciate your perspective on that. I think the the outlook that I have on this is many people in fitness, especially, default to demonstration. Mm-hmm. So to your point, if someone has an auditory processing deficit, then we need to come up with alternative solutions uh, for helping them to learn. But when people automatically default to a demonstration. That means they're not even considering that there are other things that we can use as augmented information to help people solve the problems. So what I'm taking away from this little disagreement, which is good, I'm glad that we have an opportunity to go uh, point counterpoint. What I'm taking away from this is we should have all of these things available to us and we should use them judiciously. And instead of just defaulting to a certain practice or another, we really need to understand the individual with whom we're working and then apply those strategies that are going to help them to best self-organize and become self-actualized, not necessarily because there's a rule that we're trying to follow. So, you know, a few minutes ago we talked about the constrained action hypothesis. We mentioned this a couple of times and I just want to make sure that our listeners really understand what that is. Some people may have heard of it. Uh, Some people may have seen some literature or books recently that have come out using these principles. Lori, maybe you could just give us a little bit of background of what constrained action means and how it relates to this conversation that we've been having.
2: Uh, with the constraint action hypothesis, um, the the concept behind this is that when a performer or uh, you know a, a patient or a client is utilizing an internal focus of attention, where the focus is on their movements, that that may actually constrain or interfere with automatic control that would normally or naturally regulate or plan movements, whereas an external focus of attention, where the focus is not on the movement itself, but on the movement effect, it allows the motor system to more naturally self-organize in a way that is optimal for a given individual. So that's the concept of a constrained action hypothesis. Some. Uh, I think sort of an evolution of this work um, has been uh, the development of the optimal theory by um, Gabby Wolf and Rebecca Luthwaite, um, where they have taken this concept of sort of external focus of attention and added it with um, other components like enhanced expectancies and promotion of autonomy. And so taking some very... Key really psychosocial factors um, related to how people learn movements, and created sort of this, as we call the grand you know theory of motor motor learning. Um, and I think there's a lot of really interesting research that supports some of these key concepts. And I think if we you know as trainers and therapists think about ways in which we can enhance our expectancies, sort of drive some of those d- dopaminergic systems. Uh, think about focusing on external um, focus of attention and not so much on on the movements themselves, but what the intention of the movement is, and also trying to promote our learners autonomy, right? How can they make, um, pr- promoting their decision-making within the process of even how they gain feedback, how they might choose to um, move in one way or, or another, um, and really promoting that autonomy. I think this provides, I think, you know, right now, a really nice framework for incorporating motor learning concepts into coaching and training and rehabilitation.
1: Laura, could you just explain specifically what you mean by enhanced expectancy?
2: Yeah, so the concept of enhanced expectancy is that you have expectancies um, about performance. So people have sort of their, uh, you know, you know, personal histories about their performance with a certain task um uh with you know varying experiences and lack of confidence about their performance can really inhibit their ability to you know optimize their performance so working with individuals to promote again that intrinsic motivation and and improve the expectancy that they can do this task, that they are capable of doing it. And there's a lot of different ways that we do that. One of the, I think, best is providing really positive, encouraging feedback to people, you know, mm-hmm. this sort of, you know, great job, you're doing well, not that specific knowledge of results of knowledge or performance, but really, you mm-hmm. know, encouraging them. Um, yeah. And it, it seems very simple, but this these reduced expectancies can really interfere with performance um and and in uh their paper i think they really do a nice job laying out some of the research that supports how powerful improving someone's expectancies or even the concept of self-efficacy right their belief in themselves that they can do this um it it can be extremely powerful
0: you know that is such an incredible statement that you just made And, and i had a question that i had written prior to the episode launching, but you you mentioned earlier that a lot of what we're dealing with is psychology. And I want to tie this into this notion of corrective exercise. The people really want to be corrected. You know, they're, they're, especially in a fitness setting, we understand that in a therapeutic environment, in a clinical environment, people are overcoming deficits and injuries and limitations that have to be corrected and solved. We understand that. But in fitness, we're so attuned to be implementing corrective exercise strategies. I mean I saw one website was a was a sports performance website and the owner of the website was saying, well the first thing they do is corrective exercise. I'm thinking this isn't math class. Like what are we correcting? And what is the psychological and psychosocial affect associated with constantly giving people corrective feedback, meaning, you know what, you didn't do this well enough. It's not good enough right? This is wrong. This is broken. You know, after a while, I think in, as it relates to the comment that you just made, this is not helping people to gain confidence and comfort and to get them motivated to do more. It's got to be really enervating in a way. A hundred
2: percent. And it's about, you know, again, there's a lot of talk about that, the joy of movement. You know, we've, um, we've done a little bit of work in dance and, this is a big thing about like dance that is so nice is that there's this this natural uh sort of way that we move when we hear music and what it does is it releases releases dopamine and sort of that that joy of movement and that desire to move is what we really want to help create in the people that we're working with and and it's it's really um it, you know it I think when we are constantly focusing on the wrongs and the negatives and how to do it better, it, I think it can be really um, count, counterproductive, um, I think is really the point. So um, I, I look, I don't think it's the only thing that we need to think about, but I don't think that we think about it enough. Um, and again, there's some compelling research to suggest that just promotion of self-efficacy is, is really valuable.
0: Well, that was an amazing conversation with Dr. Lori Quinn. It was such a pleasure to have her on. We learned so much today about self-organization of movement and how we look at movement and whether we're correcting and how we provide feedback or information. Uh, Truly astounding. And we hope our listeners got as much out of this as we did, and we look forward to having everyone join us on our next podcast. So Gigi, I'm going to turn it over to you.
1: Sure. So hey guys, if you like this conversation and would like to hear more conversations like this, please consider supporting us by subscribing to the podcast and then please consider leaving us a review. So every subscription and review helps us build out the podcast and the platform so we can get more guests, have more conversation and bring you this information that we all find really fascinating.